0: Kube? Kube was born in Cameroon and moved to Texas with her family in 1999. In Cameroon, her mother had a women's center where Kube and her sister often helped. She has always been involved in helping people, especially women and children. She holds a bachelor's of science in psychology at Baylor University. After her graduation, Kube moved to Arlington, Virginia and obtained her master in forensic psychology at Marymount. Kube served in the Child Welfare League of America she later joined Arlington Food Assistance Center where she worked for eight years before becoming Executive Director at the District Alliance for Safe Housing in 2017. Dash is built on three pillars, creating more safe housing for survivors, preventing homelessness, and facilitating access. Dash runs the largest housing complex for survivors of sexual and domestic violence in DC, with 42 units. Moya is currently upgrading and reformatting the interiors of the said building. Dash has worked during the pandemic Four times the number of survivors contacted DASH during the pandemic. It was even more challenging to serve them with the need to help keep social distancing. Her team had to institute new norms, limit volunteer activities, and move to remote action when possible. Still, they found a way to expand their services and launch a new program. With the turn of the year, DASH faces challenges to finance its programs and continue providing much-needed assistance to domestic and sexual violence survivors. The average user of Dash is 27 years old, African-American woman with two children. Well, Kube, we are truly truly honored to have you here as our first guest of this series of talks with prominent leaders of color striving to make the district a more livable city. Thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: All right, Kube, you grew up in Cameroon and then Texas before moving to Arlington. How does this unique experience and background make you who you are?
1: Oh, gosh. Adrian, I feel like I don't even have to say much more because you, uh, you've you covered my entire life history. Um well I've I've always um felt extremely blessed to to call several places home, first one being Cameroon, West Africa. And um, like you said, my family moved to the United States in 90 um, in 99, and that was quite a, a shock, a culture shock. Um and how has it changed um you know my experience. I come from a very close knit family, and um, I've always felt that I've stood on the shoulders of matriarchs. My mother is by far my my biggest shiro, um, as is my grandmother, who I'm named after. And um, growing up in Cameroon, and um, you know the shift in coming to the United States, it made me a much stronger person. Um, I was fortunate enough to have gone to the same boarding school that my mother went to. Back in Cameroon um, at the age of 13. Well, I went in at 10 and left that boarding school at 13. And so, um, you know, I, I really believe that the values that were instilled in me from my, from my mother um, and also all the women that I grew up around um, made me the person I am today. And I still go back to those values every day. Um, and it's an honor to, to know that those values are are echoed um, in DASH. And you, our, our tagline is home means safety. And, um, you know, my mother was my first definition of safety. She was the definition of home for me. Um, and she actually was, was really instrumental in providing home and safety to um, close family friends who had experienced domestic violence in their lives. Um, some of them stayed with us for, for over a year when I was growing up in Cameroon. And, and little did I know that I would, you know, my life will take the turn that it did. And I would ultimately um, come to Thea Dash and, and serve as the executive director. So um, in many ways, it's made me who I am and um, that experience. And uh, people who know me very well know that every now and then my accent will change and uh, I will, you know, revert <laughs> back to, to speaking in pidgin English, which is, um, you know, what, what I spoke growing up in Cameroon.
0: Oh, nice. Oh, that's definitely uh, pretty awesome uh, you mentioned a lot about your mother and you know, your life back in Cameroon but just wondering so when did you realize this was your calling helping others and working with other nonprofits
1: well actually that story goes back to my mother as well um, <laughs> I, my first uh, example of nonprofits was when she started a womens uh, women's Center back in Cameroon I you know served there and volunteered right volunteered um, as, a, as a little girl and um, When I moved to Texas, I actually studied psychology and I was going to to become a medical doctor. Um, I was pre-med for a couple of years. And and if anybody in the audience has ever had a... um, uh, Parents from the third world countries, you have a couple of options. You're either a doctor, a lawyer, or you go into business. Um, And I remember very clearly having that conversation with my mother telling her that I wanted to pursue I wanted to pursue a degree in psychology instead of becoming a medical doctor, and that I wanted to ultimately go into uh, nonprofit work. And having done that work herself, she she did a youth door, Um <laughs> because she did not she she knew that it was not a path that was an easy one. Um, and but I am, am incredibly you know blessed and humbled to to know that I was able to you know, continue to, to walk in her footsteps and, um, you know, ultimately go go on to to do nonprofit work. I left Baylor University from, from Texas and moved to, to D.C., worked at Arlington, worked at the Arlington Food Assistance Center um, from, you know, 2007 on until I moved to, to Dash in, in 2017. And so it's been an incredible journey and certainly an, a humbling one um, to be able to be of service to, um people who look like me and um, and who are, you know, building, working to build better lives for themselves.
0: Awesome. Actually, actually the great uh, segue, I was gonna ask a little bit more about your uh, stint at the Arlington Food Assistance Center. So you were there for eight years and it was a tremendous success. Did you envision having such an impact? Oh gosh, I don't think
1: so. Um, so I actually, I started working at um, AFAC when I was in, uh, getting my master's at Marymount University in forensic psychology. And I I knew coming to the D.C. area that I could, you know, I could do anything. I could have gone and worked for a big firm, but I wanted to to work a nonprofit while I was getting my master's. And I started off as the um, food drive coordinator. And that was in 2017. I had three jobs at the time um, and, you know, work from being a, a food drive coordinator. When I started at APAC, we were serving 700, um, about 700 families a week. Um, and I moved on from being uh, a, you know, a food drive coordinator to then being the assistant director of operations, ultimately becoming director of operations and, and chief, the chief operating officer. And by the time I left, left AFAC, we were serving well over 2,400 families a week. So more than a three, I think 350% increase in, um, you know, in services and staffing and also in the operations and growing the, the number of delivery sites that we had. Um, and many people, when they think of Arlington, think of, of um, a fairly affluent uh, community. It's one of the richest um, counties in the United States, and to see the disparity between how much you know wealth exists, existed, and still continues to exist in Arlington, and and the amount of need um, that existed was uh, was really striking. And um, it was uh, again, you know, just incredibly humbling and an honor to, to have been part of. Making sure that um, you know well over 2,400 families did not have to experience food food insecurity and eliminating food food deserts and it it also you know taught me a lot of what I know about executive management and in nonprofit management and helped prepare me to, to come on and take um, take the executive director role at Dash and so. Arlington is one of the places I call home. I mentioned I have several homes; Cameroon being one of them. Arlington is certainly another home for me. Um, you know, the DMB area, and um, and also my my family in Texas. Texas is my my third home because I was there. <laughs> it's
0: my- wow, that's pretty awesome. Uh, it's- Last, thing, I want to ask a little bit about diversity. Uh, do you feel like there's enough diversity and representation in leadership of nonprofits and policy-making organizations in this area, or in general?
1: That's a loaded question.
0: <laughs> I know. <laughs> Got the hard uh, question there.
1: <laughs> so yeah, let's let's go there. Um, is there enough diversity and representation and leadership? Um, I think Dash is, is is very unique. We have an incredibly diverse team. Um, with with leadership that really reflects the um, the population we serve, coming from most of our team team members are, are people are black and brown, um, you know individuals and in, in expand the full uh, the full range of um, diversity for for the organization um, as a as a, as a movement nonprofit leadership is not always is not always as diverse. And when there is diversity, when you do have organizations that are led by Black or Brown people, you do find that they um, um, are usually funded at lower levels. And um, even when they are, in addition to being funded at lower levels, which is another part from you know challenging diversity in philanthropy, you also find that they are they lack the investment um, from the community to build out systems, which is something that you know Dash has has done incredibly well at. In in really challenging and pushing our, our philanthropy partners and um, our community partners to, to elevate the voices of, of, um, of people of color to ensure that organizations like Dash um, get the resources that they need and that we are providing um, the absolute best services that we can to communities um, that really need. All
0: right. That's pretty awesome. Uh, so. Question: Uh, I wanted to ask a little about what was your motivation to join Dash, and how would you best describe the mission to people who aren't too familiar with beyond kind of the little snippet I gave. Well,
1: what was my um, motivation in joining Dash? So I had been at at AFAC for you know almost ten years, and about eight years in, I started to think about what what more or what else I could be doing. And um, while AVE will always be part close close to my heart, um, I also knew that I wanted to to continue my my journey in in nonprofit by um, serving an organization that was just as as dedicated and, and truly committed to providing dignified access um, to to communities. And you know dash picked all of those boxes for me. There is no other organization like DASH uh, that does what we do. And um, for those who don't know DASH, we are the largest safe housing provider for survivors of domestic and sexual violence in the DC metropolitan area. And um, we provide, our, our tagline again is home means safety and we provide the full continuum of services for survivors from emergency to transitional to permanent housing options for survivors in the, in, the, in the district. In addition to having our cornerstone location, which is the 42 unit apartment building dash owns and manages. We also have scattered site housing programs throughout the region um, um, serving survivors in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. Um, you know, Adrian, you mentioned our right to dream program. That is a new program dash launched in August. So right in the middle of the pandemic, we did, um, you know, We worked incredibly hard to launch a new youth program um, called Right to Dream for survivors of domestic and sexual violence, age 18 to 24, which is um, truly a a vulnerable population right now that is not getting their needs met um, in the region. And all of Dash's housing programs are available for up to two years and it's all apartment style. So really encouraging survivors and giving them the autonomy um, to live lives on their own terms. Um, Many people don't realize that domestic violence is a leading cause of homelessness. And um, we all have, I think everybody works to to, eliminate homelessness, but that will be impossible if we do not address underlying causes like domestic violence. And so um, DASH sits at that intersection of domestic violence and homelessness to ensure that um, no one has to choose between remaining in an abusive relationship or for their safety.
0: And having a place to call home. No, it definitely uh, definitely helps understand the vulnerability of that group and why it's so crucial to have this program for them. Uh, uh, so, I want to go back into a little bit about some of the strategies that you use to engage your uh, your stakeholders here. And uh, your uh, do you call them your customers? Your like the what, what is the word you use for? <laughs> We,
1: um, I know everyone has a different term. We, uh, we honor by calling them survivors, but also no. our, our residents. Um, you know, we are, are actually calling in from our, our, um, our headquarters in Cornerstone and our survivors are, live here and we are you know, fortunate enough to, to work where survivors live. And so we call them survivors or by their names. <laughs>
0: okay. So uh, what, is your, what strategies do you use to engage them uh, primarily?
1: have an amazing team of of, um, staff members. Um, Our community housing program team is really the entry point for um, all of DASH's housing services and advocacy services, including things um, like um, safety planning. And so when survivors are needing to get access into one of DASH's programs, they typically would reach out to one of our um, community housing program team members and we're working with the MOYA team on on renovating that office space So thank you all for the incredible service for providing Dash. Um, we also have a um, uh, We work with several agencies across the, the region, we are part of the DC coalition against domestic violence, which brings together all the um, the housing agencies that provides provide uh, dedicated domestic violence services, housing, as well as culturally specific um, domestic violence services and um, medical services, legal services for survivors. So that's a body of 18, I believe 18 organizations now. Um, And we are also members of the DC uh, Victims Assistance Network, which brings in um, agencies across the region from DC, Maryland, Virginia, and sometimes a little bit further out, um, who are providing victim services across the board. Um, and so we get a lot of referrals that way, um, many people hear from us from their from partner agencies. Um, and sometimes we are also reached out, um, DASH has, um, a, a national, has had a national presence and um, we have had survivors reach out to us from throughout the, the nation and sometimes internationally. Um, even in the past, we had to pick up a survivor who was coming in from... Um, Another country, pick her up at the airport, and get her to safety. So, um, while our services are, are regionally located in, in, in the D.C. metropolitan area, there have been times when we have um, partners reach out from across the nation, and sometimes internationally, to um, to either learn from Dash or also to to access resources like our Survivor Resilience Fund that provides um, emergency financial emergency financial assistance to help survivors remain safely safely housed.
0: That's quite an extensive network that's pretty amazing. Uh, uh, so, back in Dece- so back in September, in an interview for SparkPoint, you actually mentioned that the COVID health emergency is creating like a double pandemic, as the survivors are, actu- are unfortunately trapped with their abusers. And sadly, this silent pandemic is one that happens right in front of our eyes. It doesn't get covered much in the media. Do you think the general public is aware of the extent of this as an issue and the ramifications this has on children?
1: I think the general public is becoming aware. Um, and many people don't realize that domestic violence does not have a face. It can, it can literally be anybody on this call. Um, you know, the general statistics are one in four women and one in seven men will, be, uh, will experience domestic violence in their lifetime. And I have usually described the work that Dash does is, is serving as emotional containers for survivors, um, which is really heavy work. And you know, with the pandemic and we're going on what, a year now, um, of being in this, in the state, in you know, you know, politics aside of how the the, uh, the United States handled the the pandemic, it the impact of COVID of having survivors trapped indoors for extended period of periods of time. Um, has had it's created a second pandemic of its own um with higher instances of domestic violence and not just higher instances. You know, Adrian, you talked about the fact that Dash was seeing four times the numbers of survivors coming to us for, for resources um, during the first couple of months of the pandemic. Um, we are still seeing that level of of need in the community, um, but we are also seeing um, higher lethality. Um, so not only are more people at risk for violence, we are we have also in higher violence, higher levels of violence, violence and higher lethality. Um, we have um, unfortunately lost um, three survivors to violence since the pandemic hit. Um, and so it is something that I believe people are getting more attuned to. Um, and in addition to the incredible violence, there is also the other pandemic of racial inequity and racial um, reckoning that we've been going through as a nation. Um, and knowing that because of, of you know, where we are as a, as a nation, that oh, the um, pre-existing inequities that were around before COVID that are now much more prevalent um, in communities of color um, is, is the perfect storm, right? Um, so you know, the work that we do is, is not just to, to house, but really to, to ensure um, the same way businesses have currencies. I, I've been telling the team that our currency is hope. We sell hope. Um, and, and we make hope available and possibilities and make sure that survivors have that tangible the tangible resources from a roof over their heads, um, the the tools they need to remain safety, helping them to safety plan, um, and then also the means, right? The the financial assistance, um, whether it's through through our emergency financial assistance that keep them in in safe housing or um, the housing subsidies that Dash is able to provide for up to two years to um, ensure that they're in a stronger financial position to um, you know, take hold of their own lives when they leave, leave Dash.
0: It's a very powerful message. We sell hope. That's very powerful. Um, I want to ask a little bit about, you mentioned uh, we already talked a little bit about the multiplier effect of COVID on black and brown residents. And I think we also want to then also shift a little bit to ask, just kind of in closing about a little bit about Nash, I think you mentioned some of the national uh, impact and working with uh, people across the country, but uh, Since 2015 you've operated nationally with as Nash, how do you coordinate efforts and take the vision on a larger scale so you can replicate programs and success across the whole country.
1: Absolutely. um, We Dash was Dash launched a national project in 2015 called the National Alliance for Safe Housing, and we incubated and and, um, incubated that program and project for five years. They recently um, launched us in a separate nonprofit. So, in the pandemic, we were also um, we also launched a new nonprofit. We've been a bit busy. But um, you know, the, the National Alliance for Safe Housing, which going back, I came to DASH in 2017 and to go from Peg Haskell, who was a founder, the founder of DASH and Peg is now leading NASH the National Alliance for Safe Housing as a separate nonprofit. Um, but the coordination between those two entities allows which was you know taking the dash model taking the work that we have done on the ground um, since we were founded in 2006 and really taking those best practices and working with communities across the nation and sometimes again internationally to help them design programs um, and get the technos, technical assistance and training that they need to ensure that they're serving their particular communities um, in, the, in the best way that they need. Um, because how we provide services in, in DC will probably be completely different from you know, a, a, a community in rural America uh, because they have different funding structures, they have different needs to the community, they also have different, um, different uh, ethnicities and cultures that they serve. So um, that ability to tailor services to, to meet the needs of survivors, to meet survivors where they are, um, both in their current state and where they want to be in future um, is, is really at the heart of what we do, um, both locally here and, and through our, our ongoing partnership with the um, National Alliance for Safe Housing.
0: Great. Well, we had a couple minutes before it closed, but we actually wanted to take a couple questions. Uh, I think Paola actually had the first question. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, she asks, "Are there any tips you can share to women in leadership?"
1: <laughs> oh, um,
0: thank you, Paul.
1: <laughs> uh, be kind to yourself. I, since coming to Dash, one of the biggest gift the biggest gifts Dash has given me is um, the ability to to lean more into my um, leadership capacity as in, as in, in emotional resilience and. In doing that, um, it's challenged me in ways that I never thought I would have to to do. And um, and through many of those challenging moments, I had to find the time to pause and be kind to myself. I am by far my own worst critic um, and the voice in my head. And so for women in leadership, and I believe leadership is, everyone is a leader, right? No matter what role um, or where you are in your career, um, you're a leader in your own right. And so um, the ability to give yourself grace, to grant grace to others, um, and to reach out to the people that are in your circle um, when you need it. And um, stop saying sorry as much. Women, as women, we always, always, always apologize um, for, you know, occupying space. And I am 4'11". I'll stand up at one point so you guys can see me. I'm 4'11", so I'm not very tall. but I had to, I had to learn to, to be gracious to myself and to not apologize for um, for being a leader and to lean on my community um, when I needed them.
0: Great. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, any other, do we have another question? Uh, Aura. Uh, um, hi. Hi. I hi. I wanted to say hello and um, to thank you for being our first guest for the Moya Talks. Um, and my question is, how do you feel that your lived experience in your history, you talked a lot about your mother and the background where you came from, how do you think all of that um, impacts your leadership or the way you lead people?
1: Um Oh, gosh, it, it is, it, I can't separate it. Um, is it Aura? Uh, yeah, I can't. I can't separate the two. Um, It is part of who I am. And um, I have, I I said it before, I'll say it again. I stand on the shoulders of matriarchs. Um, And so my mother recently moved in with me and I jokingly tell people my life is an ongoing episode of the Golden Girls. Um, But it is just so, um, it's really empowering for me to, to learn from her um, to continue to learn from her, to continue to learn from all the women that I work with. Um, and, and also to, I, to learn from how, it, they're, the things that they have learned growing up um, and, and to ensure that I stay true to myself and stay true to my culture. Um, and as a you know, Cameroonian American um, woman, I'm also a very proud member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. And so I am able to pull from all these women around me um, and not forgetting the men in the, in the audience. Um, I have incredible, incredible supporting um, brothers and, and you know, grew up with all women. I never had a brother of my own, but since, especially coming to the DC area, um, you know, have been able to work with so many um, wonderful men that I now call my brothers through the Leadership Greater Washington, um, LGW, Family, as well as you know, brothers that I've had from my time at Baylor University that I still talk to every two weeks um, and on a family call. They may not be blood, but they are certainly part of part of who I am. Thank
0: you. All right. Uh, well, we actually had to uh, close out it, so, so we're at time. And uh, we have Kube, uh, if there's any additional questions or anyone else who would like to reach out to her, we'll uh, have share her email address for you all to definitely reach out. And I'm sure if you don't mind. <laughs> no,
1: not at all.
0: Great. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, and thank you, Kube. It was great having you here. <laughs>